Hey guys, I want to welcome you to the weekly Wednesday for the Financial Freedom Newsletter, where every week, every Wednesday, we delve into something inspirational, motivational, something excerpt taken from the Financial Freedom Weekly Newsletter. Wherever you are, if you're listening on Spotify, on iTunes, Google, be sure to click the like, subscribe, share, comment. Without ado, let's get into the show. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey guys, welcome to this week's podcast episode for the Financial Freedom Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Christopher Liu, and I'm really excited about today's podcast guest. His name is Thomas K. Leo. He's the former director of MBA admissions and financial aid for the Warren School of Business, UPenn. That's his alma mater. He's also the host of the Admittedly podcast where he provides valuable college admissions advice to aspiring college applicants and parents. So very crucial guest in these times with the recent decisions. And um, I'm really excited to get into this show. So Thomas, welcome. Thank you, Chris. It's it's really a pleasure uh, to be here. Thank you for having me on your podcast. Yeah. I know we we connected through Podmatch and I, you know we were talking backstage. I think um, you know in my former career I could be a, a college career consultant or you know one of those. But uh, um, yeah, tell us. We've your got plenty. <laughs> we got plenty of extra work for you if you uh, if you have the time, which yeah. I know you don't. Uh, well, tell the audience your story and we'll we'll get into it. Of course. I mean, very briefly, you know, my background was as an entrepreneur and venture investor and um, had an opportunity, was invited by uh, Wharton to come back and run MBA admissions and financial aid. And it was it was one of those kind of once in a lifetime things. And I took the opportunity and it was it was just an, this amazing journey, this amazing experience. And it helped me realize what I love in life, which is helping people, teaching, guiding. And so when I left Wharton, focused on education. And a large part of that is admissions advising. And so we started this podcast because one of the core tenets of what we do is we do a lot of pro bono work. Um, and we were doing a lot of kind of one-off pro bono work, but realized that that message could be spread more widely. And this podcast is part of it. And it's just, it's really fun watching, working with young people because we work with young people on high school admissions, university admissions, graduate school admissions, and, and just help them kind of realize and execute on that next big step in their life. Yeah. And it's so interesting because, uh, you know, kind of education is kind of the foundation of success um, into the working world, into professional. Yeah. So kind of, uh, you know, I know really undergraduate college admissions is really convoluted and there's so many strategies to use to get in, but uh, kind of what are your insights, you know, as a former admissions advisor? Of course. And 
And I think only you've been through some of the most rigorous and highly selective admissions processes in the world. So, um, you know, I, I think the one thing that I tell people and, and uh, you know, right now, um, end of July, students are nervous, parents are extremely nervous, everybody's trying to figure out what's going on in a rapidly changing landscape. I think the most important thing to keep in mind is, I think the, the mistake, and it's a very understandable mistake that most people make, is they view it externally. They view it and they say, okay, how does admissions work from my perspective as an applicant, right? But what matters is the perspective of the school, right? It's what is the school looking for? And you're never going to know that, right? Because that it kind of shifts year to year. The school looks, it reassesses its priority. Well, universities are always trying to look 20, 30 years out and say, okay, what impact do we want to have on the future? What kind of graduates do we want to put out in the world? What do we hope that they're accomplishing down the road? One of the things that I encourage students to do is say, okay, don't, it's not an exercise in I'm the best, I'm the greatest, I've got all these things to offer. What you really want to do is, is kind of look from the other side and say, if I were the school, what am I, what would I be looking for? Right. And the schools are looking generally for the same thing every year, intellectual curiosity, demonstrated record of achievement. They're looking for people who can come and who have a voice and who have pursued things that they love, who have passion, because that makes an interesting class. If you think about your classmates that you remember in the various schools that you went to, right? Sitting down and talking with them and just that moment of like, oh, wow, right? You discover that thing about them that is so unique and so interesting and something that they're passionate about. And that really kind of, you're like, oh, that that's really interesting. I want to learn more about that. And that's how universities are, or any school really is building an interesting class. They're looking for depth. They're looking for what you bring to this broader class. And I think that's the starting point for anybody who is beginning this arduous application journey. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's so interesting because the universities across like Europe and Asia, it's kind of like this uh, one exam score and that's how you get into it. But yes. here, like here in the United US, it's like so different and they're looking for, I guess, different traits and kind of diversity, which has its goods and bads. What One thing is talking about is this idea of the standardized admissions and a lot of colleges are not using the SAT or ACTs. How does this play in? Should people be focused on that? Should they just do it just to have it? Um, I'm, I'm curious. Of course. And um, so my favorite answer as it relates to admissions is always it depends, right? Because no matter how many applicants a school gets, they really deal with each file on an individual basis, right? So does the SAT or ACT matter? It depends. It depends on you as an overall candidate, right? They're looking at all of, you know, the, the term is holistic admissions. So they're looking at you as a wholly formed person. They're looking 360 degrees all around you. So, you know, for example, if you are maybe a first-generation applicant. Um, you're going to a public school, not one of the big fancy public schools, but public school. Uh, you're working really hard. You're doing well in, in your classes. That standardized test is not going to be as important for you. Let's say you take it, you do okay. You can choose to submit your score or not because the school is looking at you versus, let's say, a student coming from a background of, of privilege, right? And with maybe two highly educated parents, and they're going to say, okay, 
those parents are pushing test prep courses. They have the resources. The schools are providing some measure probably of test prep. And so we're looking at that within the context of your background and the opportunities that you've had. So I think the the great thing about the standardized testing optional is it it opens the application process to a much broader range of individuals, right? And you use the word diversity and diversity unfortunately now has become a very loaded word. When I'm, you know, director of admissions, what I'm thinking about is diversity on every single metric, right? So everything, geographic diversity, socioeconomic diversity, uh, gender diversity, international diversity, interest diversity, all of these things, right? So there's there's not one metric that is a controlling metric when we think about diversity. We're really looking at all of the things that go into you and your background and what you've been able to accomplish. So unfortunately, I know your listeners are probably saying, can you just give me a yes or no answer? Do I need to take the test or not? But it's never that simple. Right. So I would encourage you, if you have the means and you're able to take the test, see how it goes. If it doesn't work out well for you, then by all means, don't submit it or, or apply to test optional schools. But the other thing that I would caution you is that, again, if you are a student coming from a very rigorous school, you've got good AP scores or a high IB cumulative score, that test score may or may not really be helpful for you. And when you think about the tens of thousands of students who do very, very well, right, who score 1,500 or above on the SAT, it is a distinguishing factor only in some applications. Mm. I'm not sure if that makes sense, right? But it's it's if you have 10,000 applicants, and, and these are real numbers, who all have 1,500 plus SAT scores and 4.0 GPA, your class size is only 1,000, and you're not just going to take 1,000 out of that. So it really, it, it can be differentiating if, let's say, you have gaps in your, you know, or bumps or wobbles in your transcript, and you want to show, hey, something happened, I talked about it, family circumstances, and, but I have the intellectual horsepower, and here's the SAT score to prove it. Then you see how it balances out. And so, and, um, you know, what you're describing again is, uh, this holistic and basically there's not one size fits all. It's not like a cookie cutter. It's there's strategy, you know, that's, you know, that's why there's, um, career consultants. Um, the other question is this idea. So traditionally, you know, it's been the Ivy leagues. It's been the top 20, you know, top 10 us news. These are kind of the most popular schools. And then, uh, one question is, is, especially in this age of podcasts and YouTube, and people can get information. Mm-hmm. There, there's boot camps. Um, how do you choose a school? Is like you know Harvard or you know these these uh, really high ticket schools? Um, how do you key things to consider when when going to college? That's a, that's a great question, and and what I always uh, suggest to people is you have to do the work. There's no substitute for doing the work, right? And simply picking that Ivy plus set or, you know, top 10, top 20 set of schools does not do you justice because in many cases, right, there are state universities, smaller private schools that might offer exactly what you need, right? Now, I know there's a New York Times article that talks about the economic ramifications and benefits of attending an Ivy plus, you know, that these top schools, certainly, but that does not mean that that's the only path to success. Okay. I I think that's very important. Mm -hmm. So what I usually advise students is I say, okay, think about on the, on the big picture level, what fulfills you, what satisfies you, right? Because 
a lot of times they get stuck in this doom loop of what do I want to major in, right? And because that's what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. And when you think about, you know, you, you've seemed very focused in reading your, your biography, you've been very focused, but then you had a big shift in your career, right? And now you're doing something that, you know, is related to all the medical training and education that you've had, but is, is almost a, you know, it's a new and fresh and innovative direction. I, I say to people, Kate, think about what you love to study. Think about what interests you, what, what what's your passion. Now, start looking at the schools and start thinking, they're all going to say a lot of the same things on the website, right? Um, flexibility in learning, innovation, diversity, creativity. Okay, because they all are wonderful places. But then I want you to start thinking about, okay, if I go to this school, what is it a large school? Am I going to be, is my first year going to be survey courses with 800 people crammed into a lecture hall, right? Um, but the advantage of that is those are usually larger research universities. So by the time you get to junior or senior year, you're doing cutting edge research with leaders in the field, right? Or do I want to go to a more smaller teaching style liberal arts college where maybe the professors aren't doing the cutting edge research, but they're excellent teachers and they know my name and every class is like 10 students. And so it's a much more kind of into uh, academic experience. So, you know, you start thinking about that. Uh, people laugh when I say this, think about, think about uh, climate, right? I mean, I'm a Chicagoan born and raised. I can tell you that being at Northwestern where it's cold and dark and windy from November to March is a very unique experience, right? And it's, it's great. And they take great pride in that, but it's going to impact your mental health if that's not where you want to be, right? Um, and then start looking at what you want to study, how they offer it, right? What's the modality of learning? What does the campus environment feel like? And then find that school that's good for you. Have the courage to say, you know, for example, people always get lost in this concept of the Ivies, the Ivies, the Ivies. Well, your experience at Dartmouth is very different than your experience at Penn or Princeton or Columbia. So really pull apart what it means to be at that in that learning environment and how does it help you to achieve your goals and i think too you know people need to think about return on investment and i think you need to think about you know what it is you're trying to accomplish um what kind of financial aid are you getting if that's a consideration do you need to go spend a lot of money you know are there better alternatives where you could go to a state school a good state school for example get that bachelor's degree and then move on to a higher, you know, a really kind of super prestigious graduate school mm. and layer your debt differently. And, um, you know, the other question, you know, a lot of physicians listening to this podcast, you know, they want their kids to do well, they're very involved. And uh, sometimes their kids have different ideas on what to, you know, the strategy, the college admission strategy. So what when parents and students don't agree, how to navigate conflict during this process, you know, it's very stressful, you know, high stakes as well. Uh, how do you resolve that? That's a that's a great question. And uh, to all the parents out there, please rest assured <laughs> that my own children don't always listen to my advice <laughs> on their education path. So I'm, I'm very familiar with this. I think it's very important to keep in mind things have changed significantly since my generation went to school when, you know, our, these parents, a lot of these parents, and these physicians went to school, you know, you would have to fill out an interest card, send it into the school. The school would send you back this book 
uh, that you had to either handwrite or put in a typewriter. And for <laughs> your younger listeners, you can Google what that means, maybe find <laughs> it in a museum somewhere. And you had your your liquid paper and you were you know typing out these essays. We really didn't have much guidance. I don't know anybody that prepared for their SATs. And they you know announced at high school, hey, you're taking the SAT Saturday, bring some pencils. Um, it was just a very different world. You might apply to five or six colleges where students right now are, you know, you're capped out on the common app with 20, 20 schools. So what I would say to, and, and, and then also finally, you know, universities back in, in the day, back when, when these parents were applying, generally they were looking for different things. They were focused on more of like an all around candidate, right? So you had to have strong academics, community service, some athletics, some leadership, right? And, but what they realized is that in doing that, they were building a more homogeneous class, right? They were stacking up these kind of layers of students that looked fairly the same when you looked at their accomplishments. And now the shift has been more to students who are deeply involved in and passionate about one or two things. Because the theory is, okay, if I take an exceptional musician and a wonderful performance artist and a chemist and a biologist and a writer, and they're all really good at that and they love it and they're passionate about it. And I put them together. There's like this great exchange and funkiness that happens where they're elevating and supporting and teaching each other. Um, so what the schools are looking for is different. And what I would say to the parents is, you know, do some research, right? I'm not saying the children are all, the students are always right because a lot of times both students and parents succumb to this hysteria for lack of a better word, right? And the parents also get caught in the competitive trap, right? Oh, I, you know, I can't tell my friends at the club that my daughter's going to Ohio State, I'd be embarrassed. When the daughter is saying, listen, I want to study this specific program and Ohio State has literally the leading experts, the people that are doing the bleeding edge research right there. And I can study and work in their lab and, you know, be PhD track. And that's what I want to do. So I think communication helps. And a lot of what I end up doing is bridging that communications gap between the parents and the students. Uh, and then the other um, question is, for example, um, you know, a lot of people are interested in graduate studies, you know, law, MBA, medical. And so you have experience with um, these, uh, with MBA. And so when do when when should you pursue an MBA? Um, when should you not? You know, a lot of entrepreneurs they just just start they go start and they just you know. So what are what right. is the MBA good for, and um, how do you know it's the right path? You know, I, I love that question, and I think um, in any graduate school there's a timing issue, right? You don't law schools are tending to admit people who are maybe a year or two out from undergrad, right? So students are. Some students, of course, go directly into law school, same thing with medical school, but there's also been a shift of looking at students who may have been out for a year or two and have, you know, focused in and decided that's their path. For MBAs, you have you have several options. There are direct some, uh, you know, uh, early entrance programs at all the top schools where you apply your senior year of undergrad, and then you have up to two years to matriculate. Right. So you can you can take that time. I think it's a very individual process because, um, for example, I went after six years of work experience. Um, the average age of the MBA classes is around 26 to 28. So you do get a more seasoned professional. My personal bias is that I think you get more out of an MBA program if you have a little bit of experience. Right. Because 
And a lot of the MBA process is building relationships and learning from your classmates. And I did, I took when I was running Wharton admissions, we took some kind of bold steps to bring in direct from undergrad students. And they all came back and said, look, we had a great experience, but we didn't really gel with the class. Hmm. And in some cases, we wish we would have waited a couple of years, right? Um, so I think it's a very individual process. Now, you brought up entrepreneur. I was an entrepreneur when I went back to get my MBA. And what entrepreneurship taught me was how little I knew, mm -hmm. right? And so we got very lucky. We had some success with some companies. But I came away from that and said, listen, there's so much I don't know. And I need to go back and get an MBA to do this better in the future. So I think for, for entrepreneurs, an MBA can come in very helpful at different points. Do you need an MBA to be successful? Absolutely not. What do you need as an, as an entrepreneur from an MBA? How to build a board, how to build teams, how to lead and manage people, how to build financial models, how to raise capital. Moving from that initial, oh, I've got this idea to let me build and run a company, right? And, and when you look at, I think there's this mythology around super successful entrepreneurs that they just drop out of college, start their startup, and they're off to the races. But when you look at you know, these, these bright, shining examples in the tech world, they all without fail brought in people around them to teach them about leadership, management, you know, growth, all of these things, because nobody's perfect. Nobody understands all of those things. And so you hire people around you who are better at things than you, but also you need to learn it yourself. And the same goes for people in the nonprofit sector, right? You need to raise money. You need to build a board. You need to manage people. You need to measure the impact of the of the resources that you're deploying. So I think an MBA can, is a is a very flexible, very interesting degree. And you know, to your background, well, a, there's a lot of J, I'm sorry, MBA MD programs. You know, where where people are learning, you know, whether it's healthcare management or improving their practice or whatever it is. So yeah, yeah. And uh, as we kind of um, come to the end of the podcast, which really uh, it's uh, you know, because I love this admissions because um, you know it's almost like strategy. And um, one thing is, uh, what are the trends that you're seeing with uh, college admissions, you know, especially with, you know, we talked about standardized, you know, and again, there's um, this controversy with legacy and, um, you know, the Supreme Court, yes. these recent decisions, what are some trends that you're seeing? So at, at this moment, the universities are scrambling, right? I, I think they're, they're coming under fire from a lot of, a lot of sides and trying to figure out what the path forward is. I can tell you, having been inside a top university, the universities believe very deeply in their core mission, educating you know, the broadest, most diverse, most interesting group of students possible. Now, by virtue of size, Columbia admits a class of 1,000 undergrad students, right? You've got, and, and they might get 50,000 applications. So you've got 49,000 immensely disappointed people every year, right? <laughs> you can't please everybody. So I think that I think that the schools, their heart is in the right place. I think that the uh, discussion around legacies is overdue, and it's going to be very interesting to see how that plays out. Mm -hmm. I think the issues around schools will not lose their commitment to diversity. Schools are going to look for different ways to build diversity. And again, if we go back to our earlier discussion, you know, diversity on every metric. There's so many different. Um, metrics of diversity. And I think, you know, as a student, you want to look at that and say, okay, if I showed up at Harvard or Johns Hopkins and there was a class of 
800 people just like me, that's a waste, right? Mm -hmm. I'm not going to challenge myself. I'm not going to grow. I'm going to miss out on a lot of things. And so you, know, you want different people because that's where you learn. That's where you're challenged. You want people that are smarter than you in different things. And, and that's where that kind of intellectual creativity comes from. So there's a lot that's going to play out over the next few months uh, and years um, through the courts internally with the schools. And I'm actually very excited to see how the schools resolve that. Mm. Yeah, it's going to be really interesting and really fascinating discussion. And how can people contact you? I know you have a podcast um, and how can they reach out to you, learn more about your work? Of course, and, and um, uh, you can uh, see more about us at Thomas and at the Admittedly Podcast. Welcome you to welcome families to, to listen and send us questions. Uh, we sometimes have students on the on the podcast, and we talk through their candidacy, and that's a lot of fun and a little bit eye opening for them. The ones that are brave enough to to put themselves forward like that. Yeah, awesome, uh, awesome, engaging conversation. And um, I know a lot of listeners, their kids are you know, applying to college. So it'd be a great resource. And all of Thomas's resources will be in the links and show notes. And thanks so much for coming onto the podcast. Chris, it's really a pleasure. I, I really enjoyed talking to you today. Thank you. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. I hope you really enjoyed that wonderful, inspirational, motivational piece. Again, if you, wherever you are listening, if you liked it, be sure to like, comment, share, subscribe. We're on everywhere, Spotify, iTunes, Google, Amazon, Audible. And without much ado, be sure to thank this show's sponsors, and we'll see you next.